somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! One hope, the only hope, the exorcist. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, broadcasting live from Nick's car. And uh, we just went to the talkies, and uh, when I do bonus episodes, I don't see any of that newfangled stuff. I see movies from 1973, and we just went and saw The Exorcist. Let's identify the voices um, as we head down um, 119th Street here in Oklahoma City. To my left, sir, if you would. I'm Nick Sanford. Hi. Very good, very good. In the back seat, if you would speak, sir. My name is Dalton Stewart, and Dustin, you are a faithless swine. That is correct. Um, my name is Dustin Sells, and um, do you like to go to films? Because <laughs> I get passes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're glad, glad to be talking about The Exorcist, uh, which I cannot make a silly title for because it's about an exorcist, except for it's not until like the last ten minutes. Um, so, I guess we're just going to begin the conversation with uh, experiences with the film and just sort of where we're coming from, coming into it. I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart, how did you discover this film and what was your experience like tonight? I mean, I feel like it's one of those films you can't grow up. Even if you don't care about movies, you know about The Exorcist. You know about its reputation because it is, uh, as Nick told me earlier this evening, the ninth most attended film in history. It is the most attended horror film and the most attended R-rated film in history. Um, sold so a lot of tickets. Sold a lot of tickets. Basically, that's not even adjusted for inflation. That's just counting the number of tickets that were sold. So it's hard to not know about The Exorcist. Um, in terms of viewing, uh, this is only the second time I've seen it. The first time was also with uh, Nick Sanford when we were in high school, actually, um, at a, a mutual friend of ours' house. He got Nick forced a bunch of people together and made them watch The Exorcist. So that was Excellent. the last uh, time I saw this. So I, you know, it's not exactly something I get super jazzed about revisiting. Um, so this is the this is only the second time I've ever seen the film. There you go, there you go. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, Mr. Nick Sanford, uh, what was your first experience, and uh, again, how do you come into this film tonight? Um, the first time I saw this film, I was 13 years old. My mom rented it for oh, me God. on VHS, because she's not a good mom. And <laughs> um, and I was really free, like, I was in the hall peeking around the corner. Like, I was 13, peeking around the corner at the television, trying to watch it. I was too young to 
really get it. Uh, when I was 16, I tried it again, and I actually didn't like it very much because I was too stupid. But that whole summer I turned 16, I was just like, God, there's got to be something here. And I watched it so much that summer, and it eventually became one of my favorite films ever. And now I've got a framed poster of it hanging in my apartment, and I watch it any chance I can. And uh, a t-shirt uh, wrapped I, around wore, your torso. I'm wearing an Exorcist t-shirt right now. that I, uh, I wear it either when I watch The Exorcist or on Christmas. They're the only two times I whip this, <laughs> I whip this bad boy out annually. But, um, yeah, it's uh, I make movies. I try to make movies. And when I do, whether I'm doing a horror film or not, I am ripping off The Exorcist hard because it is that good. Dustin, before we throw to you, I, I I forgot something that I feel like is probably crucial to my experience with this film. Um, my adopted father uh, grew up Catholic and ah. saw this film in theaters when it was released um, as a young man um, in his early, it would have been in his early 20s. Um, and he, my entire life, every time this film comes up, he talks about how bad it freaked his shit out because he was a lapsed, it is and was a lapsed Catholic when he saw it. And um, all of the, the Catholic uh, mythology that is at play in the film um, took him back to his, his days um, with the church and just really rattled his cage in a big way. So it had a lot of uh, hype for me, as I'm sure did Nick, you know, yeah. being an aspiring filmmaker, even at the age of 16. You always hear about the, yeah. Yeah, so it had a lot of hype for you as well, um, as somebody who's just always enjoyed talking about movies and going to see them. Um, there was high expectations for me going in the first time I saw this. So, Dustin, uh, I know you've seen this movie a lot. I have. Why, why don't you give us your background on it? Well, the first time I ever saw the film, now you have to remember, um, grew up in rural Oklahoma, conservative, you know, sort of evangelical background. And, uh, it Billy, is? Uh, correct. <laughs> and uh, Billy Graham quite famously said that the very cans of celluloid uh, were uh, possessed by the devil. Uh, regarding this film. So this was taboo, forbidden fruit for me. And um, must take a moment and speak uh, briefly about ancient technologies. We had real satellite television, the sort of satellite television in which you had to uh, adjust the angle of the satellite to get various and sundry different television stations. And uh, that played on all the TVs in the house. And so I, very late at night, realized it was going to be playing at like a 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning and had to sneak around, get the satellite adjusted the appropriate channel way for everyone to go to bed, and then uh, you know have my alarm set in my room so I could get back up and watch The Exorcist. You um, had to work uh, for it. Uh, and hide under the covers uh, of my little bunk bed that was in my room. I was probably uh, 13, 14 years old, I assume. I, I really don't recall. But, um, you know, close to your age, Nick. It scared the bejabbers out of mm -hmm. me. It was very gross. It was also very Catholic, and so in some senses very foreign to me. Uh, but coming in, I was I thought this was something, and yes, I understand why people were so afraid. And uh, it was a very, very important uh, film for me. It's what got me thinking about joining the clergy myself, and um, now I am. So there Power you go. film. I know, right? It's a thing to it. And so every time I watch the film, I think about my vocation. And uh, it's always got a very, very powerful spiritual effect on me. Uh, when I watch it. So uh, there you go, dear listener. Now you know our backgrounds and how we came into this. Uh, let's talk about uh, just what we saw tonight uh, in, in terms of maybe something new or something you hadn't thought about that you'd observed in the film as you were watching. And I ask you first, Dalton Stewart, what do you say? Well, you know, the, the first time I saw this movie, uh, I was so distracted by how hard it was kicking me in the balls that I didn't really take the time to think about it. That was um, me. That, that was I, never, I never told you, yeah, I was dressed all oh, in black. Makes sense now. 
Um, but you know, the, especially the, the first time you see really any film, I think, um, it's easy to be kind of swept up in it, um, especially in a big group setting, you know, if, if the, the mood is right, I guess. Um, and obviously it wasn't in a theater, but it was in that kind of big group setting with, on a large television with all the lights turned out. Um, and it scared the bejesus out of me, but I didn't really take the time to, to think about it. Uh, watching it tonight, I really appreciated how much of a character study the film is and how much it does things that I really appreciate in horror where um, nothing particularly frightening happens um, in, in a big way until the end of the film where we take a lot of time to set up story and themes and character and we get little scares throughout uh, to keep tension high. Um, but, but watching a film that builds tension through small moments and, and watching a film that, you know, invests you in the characters, invests your emotions in the characters before bad things start happening. Uh, films like Alien and uh, The House of the Devil um, and The Shining and uh, Lords of Salem, um, most of those have been talked about on the Good Trash Honor cast, and I, I, love, I love it when a horror movie does that, where it takes the time to invest you in the characters uh, and isn't so obsessed with, oh, we got a scare, you know, scares per minute quota, um, where it takes the time to really build tension and then breaks the tension in the last half hour. And that's something that I really think the um, Exorcist, ex, the, I almost said executes, which is a, a weird alliteration. Um, but I think it's something that does flawlessly. I mean, there's a, a reason William Friedkin is so lauded um, as a filmmaker. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not just a, a great horror film. It is a great film, um, which is, is kind of a hard thing to pull off, I, I think, because not very, very many people do it. Very good, very good. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, so, Mr. Uh, Nick Sanford, what do you think as far as your viewing and experience tonight? Tonight, we saw the director's cut. Ah, uh, yes. Which is the only cut that I've ever seen, I, I want to Yeah, I've seen... Yeah, I've seen both cuts a lot. I've grown to it. When I was younger, I was like, eh, the director's cut, because it has blood coming out of her mouth when she walks down backwards down the stairs, you know, and all that. But as I've gotten older, I appreciate the original cut more. And Dustin, you've seen the original cut. I have. Surely. Yeah. Well, yeah, you would have had to. And so, I don't know if you want to argue about it, because we were talking earlier, you don't mind the director's cut. I mind most of it. My, I mean, the problem I have with the director's cut is there's a lot more music added that I think kind of kills a lot of the... Not, I mean, doesn't kill, because obviously, you know, it was very, you know, powerfully affected us tonight watching it. But... The director's cut itself kind of, you know, I think... It's kind of weird, actually, because there's this interview in 1998 where William Friedkin's saying, I'm never going to do a director's cut, and if I did, you know, we, you know, if, if we were to put this out now, they'd do all the subliminal crap and blah, 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 and then two years later, the director's cut comes out, and it has the goofy, you know, when Chris McNeil is in the kitchen and the lights are flickering, and then, ooh, the little demon fate, you know, I mean, that's... It, that kind of bothers me, but... It looks a lot like Max von Sydow as death. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the Bergman film, which I thought was really funny. I don't know if anybody else felt that way. But... Sorry, what were you going to say? Well, what I was going to interject was just that the thing that Nick's talking about are these sort of interjected, uh, sort of dissolved, uh, you know, frame over frames yeah. of Pazuzu's face that we see. Pazuzu being the name of the demon in the novel that's never mentioned at all in the film. Because it's yes. a silly name. And it is a silly name. 
but I've never, I've never really been bothered by that. I don't think it's too much or, or what have you. But, I mean, it's fine to have it not there. I mean, so I understand why it was yeah. cut originally. But I don't think it's a, a problem to have it there also. Yeah, it, it doesn't ruin it by any stretch. And some of the little moments that they add back in I think are really nice. Like, what is your daughter's middle name? Teresa. What a lovely name. And then, the, you know, that wasn't in the original cut. But... I think the thing that bothers me the most, I I almost don't mind, I don't mind the scenes added back in, they certainly don't hurt, they're really nice, but it is the added music, the added score, because Mm. the original film is so quiet in so many places, whenever she's walking through the room, all you can hear is just what's going on in the room, and then this director's cut, there's, you know, the brunk of the music kind of underneath, you know, and it kind of kills it a little bit, but overall tonight, it was... You know, I love watching it on a big screen. We saw it digitally. I've seen it on... I'm going to be that guy. But I've seen it on film before, and, I mean, that was really something to see that. You know, it was many, many, many years ago, but I actually did get to see it on 35mm on, a, you know, a very nice, nice print. But, um, but, yeah, the audience that we saw it with, overall, there was one dude who I guess was looking at, like boobies or something on his phone. I mean, he just kept giggling at weird parts, but yeah. but otherwise, the audience, you know, because I was really worried going into, you know, are today's audiences, are they going to find any of the silly? What's going to happen? And I think it was about as good of a uh, reaction from a modern audience as you're going to get. They were very quiet afterwards. There wasn't a lot of giggling. They were just kind of like, what the hell just happened to us? There was a very tense stillness over the theater several times. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. Which was good. Yeah, at a lot of parts that I was afraid they were going to laugh at. You know, like the, the crucifix scene or, you know, I mean, there were a lot of things that I was really... There nervous was, about. There, but there, there was a couple of chuckles uh, when Karis throws that right cross. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, when he, I, yeah when I ain't talking about a crucifix. Yeah, when, he's, yeah, <laughs> when, when he, he punches s- a 12-year-old girl. Slap, yeah, that was... Um, well, and even that's, you know, is really... I mean, that whole scene, I think, is really unsettling. You know, like I was saying earlier, I get a little misty every time, you know, the demon's out of her and she starts crying again and the mom realizes, oh, my daughter's back. And this time was no different. I told myself I wasn't going to tear up and by God, I did a oh, little it's, bit. It's a very affecting scene. Yeah, it's, but, um, so yeah, that was, that was me tonight. Dustin, what are, what are your thoughts on tonight? Well, today I, I really thought a lot about sort of the fraternity, uh, amongst clergy. You know, there's a really a whole lot of that's going on with Father Dyer and Father Karras. And uh, how these guys really are chums. They're really mates. They bro out. And, and they, yeah, and, and, and of course that, that's always been present in the film. But um, when, you know, ministers, uh, they struggle and they have these moments where they're not sure where they're at. And it, I, I felt as though that moment in which, you know, Karis is accusing Dyer of possibly stealing his shoes, which stealing is a sin, guys, mm-hmm. which is a funny line and uh, a really funny bit. Uh, in, in the film, and uh, just uh, I, I thought to myself, I bet you Karis has done this for Dyer too, and yeah. uh, that they that this is these are sort of things that happen. Well, it's, I think it's important to point out that in this scene, Karis has just lost his mother, right? Who he was caring for is his very uh, elderly mother who had dementia. Can I actually add one thing? I'm sorry to sure. interject, but the one the one thing I did notice this viewing, and I've seen this movie probably 30 times by now. I've seen it a lot, and one thing that I noticed with this viewing of it that I really hadn't, I mean, I always felt it, but I didn't quite understand it, was when um, uh, Marin kicks Karis out, or, you know, 
and Karis is downstairs, and Chris McNeil comes in, and she says, is it over yet? And he says, no, and she says, is she gonna die? And then Kara seems to go into overdrive, kind of realizing this whole thing is not about me. It's about saving this girl and all mm-hmm. my bullshit with faith and belief and oh this and that. He stops making it about him, and he goes in and he saves her like five seconds later. And that's something I I had always felt, but I never quite understood why that was. And tonight, I got it. He lets go of making it about himself. I, you know, I don't want to use the word selfish, but... Well, and Justin, what's the actor's name? I'm sorry. Jason Miller. Jason Miller uh, really sells the hell out of that line reading, too. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of a low angle, and he mm-hmm. looks up at Chris, and, he yeah. says, and just very, no. No. When, and with no uncertainty at all in his voice, and it's a really great, um, I mean, his performance throughout the film is fantastic. He got nominated for an Oscar for it. And yeah. understandably so. Yeah, deservedly so. It's did great. he win? I don't remember. I don't think he did. I don't remember. I don't know. I think the only thing, is, I think it won sound. Best sound and best screenplay. But yeah, he, he really sells that moment, and I, I I think you're absolutely right, Nick. I think in that moment he says he decides that he's like, all right, I'm going all in on this. Yeah. Like this this is important. Anyway, keep going. Well, Sorry. going back to my point about friendship and uh, again the cop relationships with yeah. uh, both Karis and then eventually with Dyer. In this version, we have him and Dyer walking arm in arm off together. And it reminds me of just of a time and place where um, these these are not homosexual relationships; they're homosocial uh, relationships. Uh, in, in that there really is um, a, a genuine love between friends who are more than friends; they're brothers uh, at this point. And I just I, I really really was uh, kind of taken aback and struck by that, and uh, found it to be really kind of powerful. Uh, and, and just, again, the sense of, you know, you really can be truly, truly chummy in a very, very sort of caring, nurturing sort of way without it becoming um, strangely sexual. And I don't know that you could get away with that sort of uh, storytelling in a film made today, yeah. if that makes sense. And so that was uh, that was particularly powerful to me in this particular viewing tonight. So, uh, well, there you go, dear listener. Now let's move on. Uh, let's do what we do on this show. Let's bring a little analysis here. And uh, just talk about what we think as far as meaning with this film and uh, why it's important. And I think that really is sort of the what makes it important are the sort of readings that it offers. And so I'm going to go ahead and ask you first, Nick, since you're the inviter of uh, the event, uh, what, why is this important and what sort of analysis do you see in this film? Well, this, well, I'm going to try really hard to not be pretentious. Um, That's what we do on the show, yeah. <laughs> Well, the thing... This the reason that this film has always stuck with me so much is it was kind of the first movie that really showed me how powerful just film can be because I don't normally think what I'm about to say I don't normally think should be important one way or another to say but I don't have any particular religious beliefs. I don't I wouldn't consider myself an atheist but I you know my whole thing has always been well you, you know it's way too vast and hard for, you know, mere mortals to decide one way or another if, if there's something there, if there isn't, if there is, what is it? So, you know, that's always been my whole thing. But this film, while I'm watching it, it makes me believe that these things are happening. It's a very, like a lot of 70s films, it's very experiential. It's something you're, you're feeling as you're watching it. It's something you, you're truly experiencing. You're not just watching, you are experiencing. Like a lot of the great, you know, 
adult films of that time, like Marathon Man or The Conversation or any, you know, I mean, I would stick this right alongside, well, no, I would put those alongside with this movie, because to me, The Exorcist is just the granddaddy of what was happening in the 70s, which was this really hardcore, you know, experience, you know, the, the experience was the thing, it was, you know, grabbing the audience and taking them along, and that's why I've always found, you know, that's why I've always held this film so dear to me, is because it just shows you how powerful a film can be. No matter what you believe, no matter what your views on anything are, when you're watching The Exorcist for the two hours that you're watching it, you are alive and you are awake and you are with it. Whether you hate it or love it, you're there. And that's something that I think a lot of films don't do nowadays, you know, there hasn't been a movie that has come out in the years since then that really just took a whole generation and made, and, you know, shook them up one way or another, and some people, you know, can giggle about it, and, you know, you see a lot of guys, just, you know, we saw the one dude in front, you know, sitting in front of us tonight, but, um, but, I mean, overall, I mean, it's, it's, it's a film that has an effect on you, it really, truly can affect you, and, I think that's, I think there's worth to that. No matter what your reading is of what's going on in the film, I think something that can truly take you into the experience. You know, every time I watch this movie, I, when we get to the last 30 minutes, I get cold because I'm watching their breath and I just right. feel, you know, I always just feel cold. You know, I know what that room smells like. I know what the carpet would feel like. You know, you just feel that environment and that's because of great directing and great act, I mean, everything just came together perfectly for this movie, and, but my, but my main thing is just, it's a power, maybe the most powerful film ever made, I don't know, but it's, I mean, it's definitely up there amongst, you know, the greatest, and, and so my whole take is power, film is power, and this is a perfect example of that. Well, it, it's the, it's the, the power of story, mostly, you know, is what we're talking about, you know, and you made sort of the religious connection earlier, I mean, that's why the great world religions are um, when they're at their best, they are telling stories, you know, yeah. and and you know, of course, you know, enculturated to times and places for their original audiences, and uh, yeah, so absolutely, and and what what Friedkin has done here, and you know, William Peter Blatty to to an extent as well, uh, has told a very very powerful story about you know a mother and her daughter, mm -hmm. and uh, with uh, you know some spiritual connotations to it, and uh, so yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, I, and I think that's sort of. That it, and the, the being a well-told story, you know, using the medium uh, that it's based out of. Yeah. That that by so doing, it is going to always be, you know, a quote-unquote, you know, spiritual religious experience. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I heard. I want to know what you. This is just going to be a quick little interjection. I I was listening to, uh, or was reading an interview with Christopher Nolan talking about like film itself, the power of film, but also the actual, fat, you know, shooting on film versus digital. Mm -hmm. And he says he'll get into arguments sometimes with studio executives saying, you know, shoot digital, blah, blah, it's cheaper. And, you know, does it really, I mean, doesn't storytelling trump, you know, the medium in which it's shot or the medium in which it's, you know, told or whatever? And he said no, because if that were the case, we'd be doing radio shows because that's a lot cheaper. Right. And so I want to, what do you think about that? Well, I, I do think the medium is specific. And, yeah. and in fact, I've heard very, very powerful um, radio shows at times that, mm -hmm. that fully exploit the medium. I think of The World of Worlds. I think of yeah. Welcome to Night Vale, um, which, which absolutely make the best of their medium, and that's why they're so immersive. 
when they do that. And uh, film itself, as far as uh, the medium on which uh, visual storytelling happens versus digital shooting, um, changes the game and it changes the way it's going to have to be shot because the blacks are different because uh, the the contrast just works in very very different kinds of ways and you're going to have to tell your story if you're going to tell it visually in different ways and it does it does change the story and so it's being offered in you know a very very particular sort of format I mean it's just like the difference in different ways of writing you know you have an epistolary novel like Dracula, which is written in these letters and journals and newspaper clippings, yeah. it does it does a certain thing, and I think it's a very excellent use of the thing that it's doing. But it's different from, say, a Stephen King novel, which can be just as effective, which has got a third-person omniscient narrator. Yeah. And so those sorts of differences are important, and so no one's right, you know, when he says it that way. And, and again, I think this particular telling of story is making the fullest and best use of the medium to do that yeah well thanks a lot Nick uh, really enjoyed that um, Dalton what do you want to say uh, analysis wise and why this film's important well I, <clears throat> what I want to say kind of doves, dovetails with what uh, Nick had to say or at least how he opened up and in that I, I consider myself uh, a secular humanist and something of a skeptic uh, about most things in general I'm just distrustworthy of certainty uh, mm. In, in general. Um, and that's something that makes this uh, this film all too prescient, I think, because Chris spends the entire, I would say, first three quarters of the film trying to go down the scientific, the logical route to find an explanation for what is wrong with Reagan. Um, and, and the doctors are, I mean, they, they, they're like, yeah, you're right, something's wrong with this little girl. Uh, and they do the same thing, and it finally takes one uh, doctor out of the, you know, the dozens of psychiatrists she's taken her daughter to to say, have you considered an exorcism? Not that I think she's possessed, just that I think, you know, uh, maybe if she thinks she's possessed, it'll help. Um, and I can, you know, in the uh, unlikely event that uh, I had a child behaving erratically uh, in the way Reagan was, I would do the same thing probably. I would you know, spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars taking her or him to medical professionals trying to find a logical, rational, um, natural explanation for what is happening. What I think the film speaks to is that Chris, you know, and, and they do make, they ask Chris, you know, do you, are, are you religious at all? Uh, and she says no. Uh, what the film does is it forces Chris to finally say, all right, there's something here going on that I don't understand and I'm just not going to get. And I, I need to consult somebody that might have a deeper understanding of this. Uh, and again, what I, what I think it forces uh, myself and, and, and maybe other people who are of a, uh, a, a non-religious um, worldview, uh, be that you know, atheistic or agnostic or you know, secular humanist or whatever, something that doesn't directly involve... Uh, the the supernatural or the mystical uh, in any capacity. What it forces us to recognize or consider is that, you know, maybe it's not gods and devils and, and the like, but there are larger issues uh, at play at the universe that uh, we're either never going to understand or don't have the tools or language to understand and explain yet. Uh, and, and that's okay. Like, surrender yourself to uh, the larger question and the larger mystery 
um, and, and surrender yourself to not knowing. Um, because, as I said, certainty bothers me, regardless of where it's coming from. And a certainty that it has to be one thing and not another um, is something to be spoken of. I mean, you tell this film was shot in the 70s because um, taking her daughter to a, a mental health professional uh, is as preposterous as taking her to a priest. And then all of the, these neurosurgeons or whatever these specialists are um, are like, no, God, no, we, we won't take her to a mental health professional. Um, that and they're all smoking, as they're, I can also tell. They're all doctors smoking. smoking in the hospital, as you yes. can tell it's the 70s. <laughs> but I, I think it does. It, it interrogates an insistence on the rational um, when I, I think we would all, uh, regardless of our, our, of our worldview, be better served by it admitting that sometimes life is not rational and our experiences are not rational and some things are going to be beyond our understanding uh, and, and to appreciate that um, and, and to recognize that and sometimes there are going to be people that know things that you don't uh, or have an understanding of the world that you don't and uh, just because they don't think what you think uh, doesn't mean you shouldn't take the time to listen to them. Excellent. Actually, that, that very much connects with what I would want to say as well uh, about the film, is that it does sort of suggest a rightness in all of the places, is that there very well could have been a lesion on her head. Mm -hmm. There very well could have been a need for her to have some sort of therapeutic experience, either in a psychiatrist's office or with those, uh, the merely therapeutic uh, ritual, uh, the stylized ritual of an exorcism. Um, to sort of, you know, help her uh, free her mind from the idea that she has become possessed. Uh, the film goes ahead and suggests that, no, actually, there is something going on, and uh, the, the Catholic Church has particular answers that will solve the problem. And it turns out, you know, again, someone ends up being right on this particular question. But what's beautiful about the film is anybody could have been right, and it goes even further to say that because we have the scene in which... Uh, Jason's mother is in uh, Karis, Father Karras' mother is in a mental hospital. Mm -hmm. Those people need medicine. Mm -hmm. you know, and those people may need surgery and those people may need therapy. They don't need exorcism, but there are people with mental health issues who are in no need uh, of a particularly spiritual answer for what's going on. It's definitely very much uh, therapeutic and or chemical uh, what they're dealing with, you know, something with the physiology of their mind. At the same time, there is, uh, there is religion itself, which is something that provides the same sort of, dare I say it, salvation uh, for a person. And that all of the people are right. And uh, I find myself very much identifying with Father Karras. That there are times in which we need to make sure we're looking for answers in all of the places. And uh, that all of the places uh, provide uh, wisdom and resources, and it's foolhardy to become either uh, something uh, of an uh, atheist fundamentalist with mental health, a as much as it is foolhardy to be sort of a, a Christian fundamentalist. That that is that is unhelpful. Well, there's a, a moment in the film that speaks directly to this, where Chris Fritz meets with Karis, um, and, and he says, "Well, you know, she needs to see a doctor." There is no demonic. If you need a, if you need an exorcist, you need to go uh, get a time machine and go back to the 14th, 14th century, whatever he says, because uh, we don't do that anymore. I've never talked to a priest that's ever done an exorcism. That's ridiculous, um, and, and it's really 
heart-wrenching moment because she's like, well, damn it, they sent me to you, you're sending me back to them, what the fuck am I supposed to do? And it's right. really, I mean, her performance is fantastic as well, but it speaks directly to your point that as, as a man of the cloth, Karis is saying, well, no, there's almost certainly a scientific explanation for this. Oh, well, as a, <clears throat> as a man of science and a man of the cloth, rather, I should say. Right. Because, uh, Kar- for those of you who haven't seen the film in a while, might, might not remember, uh, Karis is a psychiatrist. Um, the clergy sent him to uh, to med school, and I, it seems to me that the the film sort of embraces that uh, science and faith embrace. Uh, what we seem to face much of in contemporary society, and I, I really it feels like the conversations even got more insular as we've gone further on, is that no, 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 we have the science corner over here, the people who like science, and then we have the faith corner over here for the people who like faith, and never the twain shall meet. And uh, I mean that's. Balderdash, uh, frankly, it, it, it's not. Aaron's a, taking nitroglycerin pills. He's yeah. using science to s- stay alive. Absolutely, he is. But then also, he uses his faith to uh, to approach a situation, and he knows exactly what he's dealing with because of his faith, and has answers that other people do not. And uh, so, when when again, when uh, Karis is saying, "Let me tell you the story," and here's here's the events, he's like, "In this situation, I don't even know that." You know, now I think Marin is probably more of a fundamentalist than I'd be comfortable with, and that's why Karis is sort of our vehicle character yeah. rather than Marin. Uh, but I think had Karis survived, uh, there would be just another tool in his bat belt, so to speak. <laughs> there is this great moment where uh, Karis is, you know, when Marin first shows up, uh, and he's like, "All right, I need holy water. I need the, the purple scarf, or whatever that's called." Uh, and Karis says, "Well, don't you want to hear like?" what's been going on, don't you want to hear about the personalities I've identified? He goes, no, 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 there's only one. Give me my shit, Karis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is right. kind of a great uh, moment you're like, oh, oh, this is the badass, okay. Yeah, uh, th- yeah. he's Van Helsing at this point. Exactly. He, he knows how to handle the situation. And, uh, yeah, I, I, again, I think there's something powerful uh, to that. And I think something instructive, especially as we continue to draw battle lines between, you know, my team and your team. Uh, based on where you're coming from as far as, again, sort of a worldview with regard to the supernatural. Um, it seems like there might be something more there. And like Karis, I am I am something of a Christian deist. I, I don't see a whole lot of intervention. I don't see a whole lot of miracles. And I don't find devils under every bush. But at the same time, sometimes some weird crap goes down. And uh, if faith seems to be the place where we find resources that we can not necessarily explain, but at least find, again, a, a story shape to fit that in and uh, to sort of deal with and process those events. And if nothing else, um, perhaps something more than, but if nothing else, uh, that's where faith, I think, is a helpful tool uh, to be added to the, the, the contemporary woman or man's um, understandings of the world. And, uh, well, there you go, dear listener. You've heard some analysis about that. Let's end the show as we always do. And I think we're going to assume shelving, but let's just go ahead and <laughs> just say what would be our additional recommends uh, for The Exorcist. If you were going to make a great double bill, uh, what would you pick? I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? I mean, yeah, absolutely. It, it, you shelf this. I mean, it's, it's, it gets ten spinal taps out of a possible ten. ten <laughs> uh, and or ten communion wafers out of a possible ten. <laughs> uh, it, it's a fantastic film. It is a masterpiece. Uh, I, I would recommend to pair with it um, some of the films that I've already mentioned that do similar things uh, from from around the same era, uh, roughly you know uh, a decade removed from one another. But uh, The Shining, um, 
the House of the Devil, the Lords of Salem, uh, horror films that invest in world building, invest in story, invest in characters, uh, and aren't about trying to scare you at every turn, but are about ratcheting tension so tight that it is right when you think it's about to snap, they loosen it back up a little bit, uh, and then they just throw a, a, a spool of steel wool at you uh, at the end. Instead of ever letting the tension break, they just beat you over the head until you're confused in the movie ends. I love that kind of horror. Um, to speak direct, more directly to some of Dustin than my, myself's points, uh, maybe check out the works of Neil deGrasse Tyson and Rob Bell, mm. um, two men who are coming yes, uh, from the mysteries of the universe in totally different ways and uh, kind of fall somewhere in the middle. Rob Bell's a pastor who basically says, uh, your science is God, and Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist who says your God is science. Um, and I, I think both um, explanations or um, you know ways to ponder the question of, of life are equally valuable. So that, that's what I would recommend you pair with this film. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dolster. Mr. Nick Sanford. Now, obviously, I'm assuming, again, a shelf for you. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, yeah. as your torso is still wrapped uh, in the t-shirt of The Exorcist, uh, what are your uh, other recommendations? Yes, I give this 37. You're not my mother's out of 37. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. It, well, I, I want to just to kind of the reason. <clears throat> it's a, w- everything that we've talked about, like in the last 30 minutes, makes me realize how relevant this film is still today just as much yes. as it was in 1973 like almost more so like I'm, I've watched this film a ton of times and this conversation has made me go Whoop! people need to see this um, today I think people need to watch this today families need to watch it together and have a conversation about it afterwards this is, this is just a this is a great film um, and also your analysis because I was going to say another film for my else until you started saying all the stuff that you did, kind of both of you. Um, some people are going to roll their eyes at this, but I would actually, I know Dalton is, uh, Interstellar. Because I am going to roll my eyes, but only because you mentioned Christopher Nolan every chance you get. That's okay. Because that <laughs> is a film which is, we need science, and we need to trust that there's something going on that we can't understand. It's like what Anne, Anne Hathaway's very divisive speech in the middle of that movie, you know, maybe we should trust, you know, in her case it's love, but just, you know, this feeling that we can't quite quantify, maybe we should trust it even if we can't understand it yet, you know, and McConaughey's like, you're a scientist, bro, do science, and her character kind of embraces both, she says, she, you know, for her character it's not an, it's not a this or that, it's a this and that, and that's something that, as I've gotten older, because, you know, when you're a teenager, you get like, man, there's nothing out there, and it's all for nothing. But, you know, as you get older, you kind of start thinking, well, maybe there's something out there, and we, it doesn't have to be one or the other. The two can coexist rather well, rather harmoniously, I think. And so my pick would be Interstellar, because that's what the whole point of that film is, in a lot of ways, for me, is let's take both. Let's take science and this feeling of being mysticism, whatever you want to call it, that. And so that's my else. 
very, very good. Thank you very much. Um, I, of course, would also want to shelf this film. I already own it. It's a movie that I love. Uh, I recommend you see it highly. Uh, in terms of, uh, again, sort of my journey to the clergy, um, I'll give some other recommends of uh, The Prophecy, uh, starring Christopher Walken as the Angel Gabriel, <laughs> um, which has uh, Elias Cotius as a uh, priest who is now a homicide detective after he sort of failed out of uh, his uh, preschool, and then uh, Robert Duvall's film, The Apostle, in which uh, he, he struggles with sin and with faith, and uh, where he is placed and all that. And I think it's kind of a very, very beautiful independent film uh, about those subjects, and I recommend it very, very highly. I just had two non-horror uh, picks come to mind uh, as, as you were speaking, Dustin. Uh, Calvary from last year, starring yes. Bruce which is a fantastic film uh, about a priest who has lived this whole life before joining the, the priesthood uh, and is kind of struggling with questions of, uh, of life and morality. Uh, and also uh, William Friedkin's most recent film, Killer Joe, uh, mm, starring mm-hmm. Matthew McConaughey, which uh, Nick helped me remember uh, by talking about Interstellar. Uh, which <laughs> Both which, star Ellen Burstyn, I just realized. Murph. Recommend all the Matthew Mahogany you can. No, Murph is in Interstellar. Yeah, Ellen Burstyn. That's funny. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, McConaughey, that's kind of the start of the McConaissance, was Killer Joe, and it shows just because somebody's uh, advanced in years doesn't mean they can't direct the shit out of a movie, because Killer Joe is a fantastic thriller. Um, so you should definitely check those out, especially if you're thinking, well, what's Friedkin up to these days? Hmm? Very good, very good. Well, there you go, dear listener. Take a look at The Exorcist and have a conversation with some friends. Uh, tweet us back. Uh, hit us back up on all those social media usual suspects. We're uh, good underscore trash on Twitter. Uh, you can also find us at uh, facebook.com forward slash good trash undercast. It's all one word. And we'd love for you to be part of the conversation with us all. But until uh, we're back at you through the earwaves and through your earwaves and your ear holes, uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>